So I'm going to read from, from the Bible. It's also in your bulletin. Uh, it's Galatians 5, 16 to 26. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of God. It's on, but it's red. Oh. We just got to swap out the... How's that? There we go. See? Well-oiled machine. All right. Um, so we are again this morning looking uh, together at Paul's letter to the Galatians. And for some of you, maybe it feels like we've just been at this forever. Uh, maybe that's true. Uh, we've, we've been at it for a while now. Uh, we're finally... Uh, finishing up uh, chapter 5 of Galatians together. And uh, we've been listening to the Apostle Paul hammer away at a particular theme. He has been hammering away at this idea that we are justified, that is, made just or righteous in the eyes of God through faith alone, as opposed to doing anything to earn his favor and be made just or righteous. 
And he has been talking about this in different ways and, and, and explaining the implications of it in different ways throughout this entire letter. And as, by the time we get to chapter 5, he starts dealing with a charge that his opponents have kind of raised against him. There's a bunch of guys who are in opposition to the Apostle Paul who have said that his message that he keeps teaching, that we are justified only by faith alone, is what's called antinomianism, big, fat, fancy word that basically just means against law. They were saying that because Paul didn't think you needed to obey any kind of laws in order to get God's favor, that he was actually opposed to laws of any kind. That he didn't really care about whether or not you lived a good life. He didn't care about whether or not you tried to obey God. He didn't think that that stuff mattered at all. And, and it's kind of understandable on, at first blush. You see, this is what Paul is saying to the Galatian church. And this is what he's saying to you and me today because this message hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's this. And every time I put it this way, I go, really? Is that really true? I, I find that hard to believe. I got to admit. And I'm a minister. So I hope you find it hard to believe too. Here's how it, what he's saying. He's saying that God loves you right now, and think about it, in all your screwed upness, even if you're a Christian, Christian or not, it, it's kind of irrelevant to the question about whether you can be self-centered, whether you can have a temper, whether you can deal with uh, lustful thoughts, whether you are kind of greedy, or whether you tend to gossip or whatever. Christian, non-Christian, we all have these issues, Okay. He says this, by faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, God loves you right now as much as He is going to love you a billion years from now when you are perfect. Really? Yes, really. That's what Paul is saying. And to them, to, the, to Paul's opponents, this just does not fit. This can't work because to them, they say, that sounds then, Paul, like what you're saying is, is you can just go and do whatever you want. Like there's no incentive to live a good life. There's no incentive to concern yourself with uh, dealing with a bad temper or concern yourself with dealing with your lustful thoughts or your greed or your selfish ambition or whatever. Like what's the point of it all? And Paul says that's not true. I am not opposed to law at all. I'm not opposed to obeying God's law at all. In fact, in verse 14, which is not part of our text this morning, but it was last week, he says this. He says, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's not opposed to obeying the law. Here, here's what Paul is opposed to. Paul is opposed to relying on the law, and there's a difference. There's a big difference between obeying God's law and relying on God's law. You see, over and over again, Paul has been saying this phrase in Galatians, and it comes up in our passage again in verse 28. No, verse 28, sorry, verse 18. It says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. He keeps using this phrase, under law, under law, under law. And his point is this, that if, if you don't, rely on the accomplishments of Jesus Christ alone to make yourself right with God, 
then you are stuck with having to rely on some kind of law, your obedience to some kind of law, in order to make yourself right with God. Those are your options. It's either the one or it's the other. And Paul is arguing over and over and over again. He's saying Christians are set free from the burden of having to rely on the law. So that now you obey the law because you love God. Because you're thankful to God for what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. It's a completely different motivation. You're not trying to get anything from him. You're trying to just, you're just trying to express your devotion and commitment to him. It's, I can't help but keep going back to relationships between people when they fall in love, right? If you're any guy who's dating a girl who feels like he constantly has to do stuff to keep her is in a terrible relationship, wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you say? That's not how you want to be in a relationship with a woman. You want to be in a relationship with a woman who you think loves you, who you know loves you, and because you know that they love you deeply, you want to do stuff that pleases them. Right? So that's what Paul has been arguing over and over and over and over again. And what's interesting is, is that the opponents of, of Paul were saying that Paul, he didn't take God seriously enough. He didn't take the law seriously enough. Because he didn't think that the law, apparently in their view anyway, didn't have a place in their salvation, in their being made right with God. But think with me for a minute. Just think about this. If you are saved entirely by grace alone, that is, God's undeserved favor, you actually have a higher view of God and a higher view of the law than if you believe that there is something you ought to do right in order to make God happy with you. You see, sometimes you can be... You can find communities that, are, are, that take, take the law very, very seriously and take obedience to the law very, very seriously. We call them sometimes legalistic communities, and we say they must have a very, very high view of the law. But they actually have a very, not very, I shouldn't say that, that's mischaracterizing. They actually have a diminished view of God because deep down inside they believe that somehow if they do work really, really hard at keeping the rules, whatever those rules may be, and they can be... Everybody's got their own set, right? Like every religion seems to have their own set. Almost every individual seems to have their own set. But as long as I keep them, well then, God will love me. And here, here the Apostle Paul is saying, that's impossible. God's standards are impossible for you to meet. Not because God is unfair and he has unfair standards, but because you're a sinner, and it is in your DNA to be incapable to follow God's law and keep God's law. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul actually goes so far as to say that it's in our natural DNA to not even want to. We don't even want to keep God's law and obey it. Now, why are we hammering on this over and over again? Like, Many of you are believers, and you're like, I, I know this. Can, when are we going to move on? Are we going to move on? Maybe you're not saying, can we move on? But I could understand if you were saying, can we move on? One of the reasons that we are hammering on this is this, okay? We want to be a church that 
is a, how do I put this, is a effective witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ to the non-Christian world around us. Okay? That is a, that's deep in the bones of your pastor and deep in the bones of the church. And one of the things that, that happens all the time when I talk to people who are not Christians is when I ask them about Christianity, what it is, what they think it is, what it's all about, they think it's essentially about following certain principles of life. That, as you know, if you go to church and if you're a good person and, and that kind of thing, if you do those kinds of things, then God will love you. And if you believe that that is the case, not only do you have a false understanding of Christianity, but you also have a false understanding of your own situation because then I talk to them about, well, what if you were standing before God and you had to deal with God and he had to ask you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that? And invariably they would say, well, because I've tried to live my life as a good person. Essentially, I've tried to be just like those Christians that I know. I just didn't go to church and I, you know, I didn't do all that stuff on top of it. And that's all because... Inside and outside the church, frankly, we are just ruled by this belief that somehow God loves me or favors me or will reward me or is good to me based upon my performance. And we have got to knock that out of us if we are going to be able to be proper representatives of Jesus to our communities. So that's why the Apostle Paul, or not, <laughs> the Apostle Martin Luther, no, Mar Martin Luther's not an apostle, but that's why he said that this doctrine, this doctrine of justification, is something that, and he was telling pastors this, they need to meditate on it, they need to sink it down deep into their hearts, and they need to bang it into their people's heads continuously. So that's why we're doing this. What are we doing today? Well, we just said that, that the Apostle Paul said, look, uh, obedience does matter. There is this command, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to do that. How does, that, how does this dynamic that you are saved by grace, therefore you obey, how does that work itself out in the Christian life so that you and I do actually start to live in a way that, that does represent Jesus well? And that's what the Apostle Paul talks about in the passage that we, we just looked, or we're looking at this morning. And, and you can follow, if you, want, if you want, excuse me, a little outline that's on the back of your bulletin. Uh, the, the title of the message is The Christian Fight. <laughs> Paul describes this dynamic as a fight. The way we grow in our representation of Jesus to the world is through a fight. And that's what we're going to unpack together. The first point is this. We are all in a fight. This is what Paul describes in verses 16 through 18 when he says, I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. 
For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. The Apostle Paul says that actually, in fact, all people are in a fight. We are in a battle. Before you become a believer, according to the Bible, before you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you are in a fight where you are at war with God. That's the testimony of Scripture. God says, I'm God, you're not. And you essentially say, I'm God, you're not. That's the basic elements of the battle. You are in rebellion against the authority of God in your life. And the fact is, is that life can go along pretty okay, even under those circumstances. Life can work for you. It just might not work exactly the way it's supposed to. Let me, let me kind of try to illustrate this. You know, when you, if you drive, you see this in movies, this happens sometimes, right? Or maybe it's happened to you personally. You're driving along and all of a sudden you blow a tire and now you just have the wheel. And in the movies, you know, it happens during some high-speed car chase, right? So the guy who blows a tire, he's still trying to get away from the cop. So he doesn't just pull over and change his tire right away. What does he do? He just keeps on driving because he's trying to escape. And it works on some level. Uh, you see some people actually do this, right? They blow a tire and then they keep on driving before they pull over and they're just going on the wheel well or the wheel. And they are traveling, they are getting somewhere, but at the same time, they're doing tremendous damage to their car. And Scripture says that in the same way, when you live outside of a relationship with God, when you're in rebellion to Him, yes, life works, it goes along well, but you do damage to yourself along the way. In some ways, you're wearing yourself down you're ruining yourself. You're, you're shortchanging yourself because you're not experiencing all the things that you could be experiencing if you would just submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And now at this point, I'd love to just take the rest of the sermon to take that point and just unpack it further and further and further for you, but I can't. So I tease you and say, come back again and find out how that can be. At this point, I just I got to say, when you become a believer, however, what Paul is saying in this passage is, is that the Holy Spirit actually takes up residence in you, the divine life. He takes up residence in you, and now he gives you a new creation, a new nature, so that in a sense, you have two natures. You have, there's two yous. There's that old sinful nature that was in rebellion to God, but now there's this new nature empowered by the Holy Spirit that actually desires to... to follow God and please God. And so that old nature is at war with God and the new nature is at war with the old nature. Do you get what I'm saying? So that now your fundamental battle is not vertical, it's almost like your fundamental battle is horizontal. It's, it's with yourself. And it's a different kind of fight. You know, the first kind of fight, the fight of rebellion against God, it's, kind of, it's like a street fight, you know? It's like, it's like a outside a bar on a Saturday night when a bunch of guys just go berserk and start pounding on each other and they get beat up. That's a bad fight. That's the first kind of fight. But the, some fights are good. You know, if you go to the gym and you work out and you, you're in a boxing class and you, you have a sparring partner and you go at it, that's a good fight. It's a development, right? It makes, things, it makes you stronger and healthier and better at your sport. That's a good fight. And what Paul is saying is, is the first fight the, the rebellion against God, that's a fight that's damaging you, but the other kind of fight is a fight that, that 
that develops you, that strengthens you, that advances you, that causes you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, okay? But that fight, if you're a believer, is going to last your entire life. And this is why Paul repeats in verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. You've got to remember that. If you are a believer, you are not under law. You are not relying on the law. You're in this fight. You're seeing anger pop up in your life. And look, let me just get very personal, all right? My kids will testify to this. I have a temper problem. I do. Um, I, like, it's, it's not violent or anything like that, so let me just explain that. But I can be, I can sometimes, like, just go off. I don't like start swearing and stuff like that, but I raise my voice and I can say some hurtful things to my kids if they're not listening to me the way I expect them or whatever. Now, this is something, I've been a dad for 17 years. And I was like this when I was first a dad, and I'm still like this. Now, I think, by God's grace, I've made some progress, but I, I can't say that I've become my wife who does not have a temper it doesn't mean she never gets angry. I'm saying she doesn't have a temper. She doesn't have an explosive anger that, that kind of can get away from her. Now, if I, it, I'm fighting that. I'm still fighting that. I think I've made progress in that. I think by God's grace, the Spirit has tempered my temper. Huh. Funny, hey, if you think about it, how that word, oh, anyhow. Uh, I, I've made some progress. But if I'm relying on the law, then every time I fail in that progress, I will beat myself to shreds. And I will say, I'm a terrible Christian, and I'm full of guilt, and I suck, and I should be way better than this by now. I will tear myself up. And when I do that, that's because I'm relying on the law. Paul has to hammer home to us over and over and over again. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Even when you fail, you're not under law. You're not relying on the law to feel better, to make yourself acceptable. And therefore, when you fail, you can cry out for forgiveness and you can read it and you can, you can receive it, sorry, and you can get up and you can press on, continue the fight without being horribly, horribly depressed all the time. Okay? So that's point number one. We are all in a fight. We're in a fight. Point number two. What are we fighting over? And this is where Paul's brilliance, it's obviously divine brilliance because it's so brilliant. Paul says that actually what we're fighting over is competing desires. Look at what he says. He says in verse 17, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit desires, not the words not in there, but the assumption or implication is what is contrary to to the sinful nature. Older translations use the word lust here. We don't use it today because lust, you, pretty much we always think of sexual stuff when we think of the word lust today, but that's not what Paul was talking about then. He, it's this particular word, and I don't do this all the time, but this is a word that I will do this with. The Greek word is epithumia, and it's a particular word that actually means over-desire. It means like out of control 
longing. It's a super desire. It's, a, it's almost an addiction kind of desire. You have to have it. It's a word that describes, frankly, idolatry. And it's very important because Paul's point here is that our main problem is not that we want bad things. Yes, we do want bad things. We want destructive things. Paul's main point is, or main, Paul's point is that our main problem is the fact that we over-desire even good things. In other words, we want even good things too much. They're too important to us. They're too central to our satisfaction or to our identity or to our contentment or to our comfort or to our, our sense of self or whatever. See, he makes this list in verses 19 to 21. It's, it's very interesting, this list. It's not just actions, okay? It's also attitudes. So he talks about sexual sin. He says in verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Then in verse 20, he talks about religious stuff, idolatry, and witchcraft. Then he talks about hatred, and it's, or sorry, relationships. And it's not just activities. He actually talks about feelings that you're having or attitudes that you're having towards one another, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Then he says envy. Then he says drunkenness and orgies. And orgies there is not like sexual orgies. He's talking about probably drunken parties, like boozing, substance abuse, essentially. And he says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, every one of us has to admit that on some level, to some degree, we're prone to at least some of the things in this list. I mean, some of you have wrestled with drunkenness. Maybe some of you have wrestled with substance abuse, and that's a real thing, or an addiction of some sort. Some of, many men, certainly, and probably many women as well, have wrestled with some level of sexual immorality. Some have wrestled with pornography and addiction to pornography. Others have simply wrestled with fantasizing about being with a man who is not like their husband. Maybe they don't find their husband as... Uh, um, attentive or as nurturing or as gentle as, as another, and they, they, they sort of dream about being with a guy who's like that. At the very least, each and every one of us has had some form of selfish ambition in our lives, right? Or jealousy or envy. But Paul says all of that stuff, it all comes from being under law. What? What? Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Paul is saying that to, to gratify the desires of the sinful nature, which is verse 16, is to be under law. And then he describes what that looks like in verses 19 and following. So the point is this, doing the stuff described in verses 19 and verses 20 and 21 is not just like falling into temptation and doing bad things. That's not all it is. There's more going on. Paul is saying it's the result of the old motivational structure in your life. In other words, there is a sin underneath the sin. Perfect example. Ask yourself this question. Why do you lie? We all do it. Some of us do it a lot, some of us not so much, but we all do it. 
but why do we do it? It's not the same reason for everybody. Person A lies because they really value their comfort, and so they'll lie in a situation and a circumstance in which they don't want their comfort compromised, right? So, hey, do you want to come help clean up the park tomorrow? Sorry, I'm busy babysitting my niece's dog. Because you just don't want the discomfort of going to clean up the park tomorrow. So you lie. Person B would say, why would you ever lie for that? I would never lie for that. Ah, but person B will lie in order to maintain their reputation and their good status with other people. How's my hair? Beautiful. <laughs> right? Okay, well, that one, I mean, we'll all do, we'll all do those kind of lies. But there... To maintain the reputation or not upset someone. Hey, you said you were going to be there tomorrow or yesterday and you didn't show up. Why not? Oh, sorry. I was dealing with X, Y, and Z and I just couldn't get there and I really apologize. I'll be there next time. Meanwhile, you could have been there. You just didn't want to be there. But you can't just tell the truth because you don't want that person to be mad at you. See, there's, a, there's something behind the behavior. There's an epithumia an over-desire behind the behavior. Your comfort is too important for you, to you, sorry. Or your, your sense of being respected by others or being liked by others is too important for you, to you, sorry. And that's, that's breaking the law. But you see, you can, you can keep laws for the same bad reasons. Verses, verse 20, what does it say in verse 20? B, idolatry or... Uh, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Some people on a bad day would say, you know, that's a pretty good description for a church. They've experienced in the church people who are like really not very nice, very hard on people, very condemning of their behavior and their actions. And they, and they say, why is that? Well, think about it. If God loves me because I'm doing the right things, if I'm in a community that we all kind of think that way, that uh, God loves me and favors me and delights in me because I'm doing things the right way, I am going to be hard on those who I think are not doing things the right way, the way I am. So here's a, here's a young mom. I've seen it happen. Here's a young mom. Maybe it's her first child and her kid is eight months old, and baby's not sleeping through the night, and mom's not getting much sleep, and there's lots of crying and stuff like that, and she describes how she goes in, and how she tries this, and she tries that. And there's mom B, who's a firm believer in firm parenting. And she says, well, if you would just take the child, put them in the bed, give them a kiss, turn the light off, close the door, and let them cry it out, you wouldn't have this problem. Very simple. You're obviously not parenting the right way. Or you have, uh, uh, here's a guy who has two or three kids, and by God's grace, never really had many problems, behavioral problems with their kids. They're, they have taught their kid to love Jesus. They have taught their kid to, to respect elders. They have taught their kid a good work ethic. They've taught their kid all kinds of important good things. And their kids have kind of grown up 
in a good, generally trouble-free way, and things have gone well. And here's, here's Dad B. And Dad B, same thing, loves Jesus, pointing his kids to Christ, teaching them to be responsible, teaching them to take their studies seriously, all that kind of stuff. And one or two of their kids are just going off the rails. And Dad A looks at Dad B and says, well, you know, if you would just uh, lay down the law, tell him how it is. You know, if my son was doing that, I'd say, son, I can't have this in my house. You either smarten up or you find another place to live. And the kid would go, okay, Dad, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll never come home seven minutes late again. And Dad B says, okay, I'll try that. I mean, I mean I'm desperate. Son, you either straighten up or you can find another place to live. And the kid looks at his dad and he goes, finally, see ya. And Dad A looks at Dad B and says, well, you must be doing something wrong. You're the problem here. See, that's what happens. When we live with this, I justify, I am right because I do the right thing. God loves me because I do the right thing. This is, this is what's underneath these kinds of behaviors. Now, I'm not saying, Dad, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Dad B couldn't do anything differently. I hope you understand what I am saying, because I can't just say it all again, because then we'll be here forever. But now look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the sinful nature. Remember, there's that fight. But in the believer, the believer has the Spirit. And the Spirit is involved in the fight of a believer. Now how is the Spirit involved in the fight of the believer? It says in verse 17 that the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. What does the spirit desire? Paul actually doesn't describe the details of what the Holy Spirit desires here in this passage, but we, we know from other passages that the ultimate desire of the Holy Spirit is this, that Jesus Christ would be glorified in you. That Jesus Christ would be glorified in you, which means that the Spirit's greatest desire is twofold. It's one, that you would make, get out of my way, make much of Jesus. That is, that Jesus would become so glorious and powerful and beautiful in your sight that you are mesmerized by his nature and by his love and by his, his actions on your behalf. And that you would start to develop those character traits that reflect the nature and love and beauty of this Jesus in your life. Make you like Christ. Paul keeps saying, be led by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. That means, I guess, you're supposed to follow the Spirit, right? Where is the Spirit going to take you? He's going to take you to the person of Jesus over and over and over and over again. That's where he's always going. That's where he's always going. So that as you are led by him, you'll begin to bear that fruit in described in verses 22 and 23, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are Christ-like characteristics, Christ-like traits, and they are the fruit of the Spirit as he guides you to Jesus. Okay, last thing, point number three. Did I even say when we went, got to point number two? I hope so. Point number three, how can we fight? How can we win the fight? How can we win the fight? Okay, look at verse 24. Paul says this. He says, 
Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. It's interesting that Paul uses this word crucified. He doesn't say they have killed the sinful nature, they have decapitated the sinful nature, they have gotten rid of the sinful nature. He says, specifically, he says, they have killed, or sorry, they have crucified the sinful nature. Why? And some scholars have argued, well, he wants to emphasize the fact that it's a slow death. Crucifixion was a slow, painful death uh, back then. And so what they want to emphasize is that Paul is saying that, that this is a slow, lifelong battle. Same thing with the use of fruit. Fruit doesn't just pop on the tree instantly, right? It, it grows slowly over time. And that's probably true. But there's probably, I think there's more going on here because Paul says you have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. He goes back to that epithumia, that over-desire problem that we have, that idolatry problem that we have. And what Paul is saying here is that it's not enough to just recognize these things in us and say, stop it. But you actually have to crucify them. You have to take these things that are too important in our lives, and you have to bring them to the cross to be killed. You can't just stab them with the sword of your willpower. You have, to, you have to bring them to the cross of Jesus Christ. They need to be killed there. Well, what does that look like? Let's take one example very quickly. Success. Success is important to a lot of us in this room. We, we can't bear the thought of getting fired from a job. Or we cannot imagine what it would be like to lose our business, you know, go bankrupt or, or just have to close it down. In fact, for many of us, we can't even handle the idea that we just sort of muddle along, right? You know, I, middle management all my life, never really moved up, never really moved down, retired after 40 years. That just, for many of us, that's like, oh, that's a death. Because what kind of story do I have to tell at the party? Oh, I'm you know, making my promotion, got into the next level, whatever. Or the idea that our business is just never exploding and becoming big. For many of us, this is a, this is a thing. Or if our church just stays small and very quaint and doesn't make a big splash in the community necessarily, or certainly around the world, you know, no big, you know, web ministry or something like that. See, why is it so important to you? Why is it so important to me? That's the question that we're being called to ask ourselves, and, and we need to take that question to the cross and see the issue in the light of the cross. And say that our success, as we deal with this problem in our hearts, we have to say, look, my success is not in how big a business I build or how far ahead I get in my corporation or how massive my church becomes. My success is in my Savior, Jesus Christ. He is my success. I rest in His accomplishments. And He delights in me to the point that He was willing to leave all the success of being the creator of the universe who sits at the right hand of God the Father and is in glory unimaginable. He was willing to leave it all behind and become a homeless, poor, 
poor itinerant preacher that was slammed onto a piece of wood and killed like a two-bit criminal on some dinky little outpost of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago for me. He was willing to do that for me. So that even if I lose everything, even if I lose everything, and even if it's my fault because I made bad decisions or because I didn't work as hard as others did or whatever, even if it's my fault, Maybe I just don't have good business sense. Maybe I'm just not a very good church planter. Maybe I just couldn't cut it in that kind of job. Whatever. Jesus looks at me and he says, you are nevertheless the apple of my eye. The apple of my eye. That's crucifying the sinful nature. See, that puts your desire in its right place. It's not a desire for success in and of itself is not a bad thing. If you want to get married, if you want to have a great career, if you want to have respect, if you want to make money, that's fine. Those are good things. But when you got to have it, when it starts messing with your sleep cycle and it starts messing with your ability to keep your food in your stomach and it's messing with your ability to relate to your family, when it's messing with your life, it's not a good thing anymore. Now it's an idol that is driving you to mindless servitude. And it's destroying you in the process. Keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. Where is the Spirit taking us? He's always taking us to Jesus. You know, we sang that song just a couple minutes ago, I Need Thee Every Hour. And I love the second verse. Let me just end with quoting it again. I need thee every hour, every hour. Stay thou nearby Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us all that we need to fight. Help us to fight, Father, not relying on the law, but to fight because we long to grow into the people you have made us to be in Jesus. Thank you so much. Thank you so much that you have provided all that we need in him. In his name we pray, amen.